Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. Good afternoon. I'm Russell Bohr, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine in Pulmonary and Critical Care at UCLA. Thank you for joining me for this podcast, Going for Gold, Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease for the Primary Care Provider, which will review the updates to the clinical guidelines for the management of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease tailored specifically to primary care. In this session, we will review the diagnosis and basic management of COPD, when to consider escalating and de-escalating treatment regimens, and when to consider expert referral. While I would have loved to talk to you all in person, I am grateful for this opportunity to discuss updates in COPD care in the primary setting with all of you. So where do our treatment guidelines come from? The guidelines I'll be discussing today are issued on about an annual basis by the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease and are commonly known as the GOLD guidelines. These guidelines are established by a panel of experts worldwide and are settled upon by reviewing the current body of evidence for the diagnosis and management of COPD. Adherence to these guidelines is associated with more expedient and accurate diagnoses and improves management and health-related quality of life for these patients. Unfortunately, uptake is not great with these guidelines, probably due to their lack of dissemination outside of pulmonary specialist practices, while the majority of COPD patients are actually cared for in primary care clinics like yours. So who is at risk for COPD and what is the pathophysiology? It's important to remember that all people lose lung function as they age, even in absence of exposure to tobacco smoking. Those to develop COPD lose lung function faster than those without COPD, particularly due to the loss of elastic recoil of the lung tissue, which causes airflow obstruction, leading to air trapping during exhalation. This is particularly notable during exercise. As the respiratory rate increases with metabolic demand, there is less time for obstructed air to escape, causing overinflation of the chest and significant dyspnea. Additionally, the surface area between the air and the alveoli and capillaries surrounding them is lost due to alveolar destruction, and the ability for gas exchange becomes diminished. While COPD can happen in non-smokers, combusted tobacco is by far the most common precipitating factor among patients in the United States. Worldwide, ambient and indoor air pollution appears to be a significant contributor as well, though less so in the developed world. This brings us to our first case. Our first patient is someone I saw recently in clinic, a 75-year-old man who smoked for over 40 pack years, having quit about 20 years ago. He complains of increasing shortness of breath and now has to stop after walking about 100 meters to catch his breath. He had a cardiac workup that was negative for ischemia. His oxygen saturation in the office was normal. He has a cough with clear sputum that is worse in the mornings, no wheezing, and has never had pulmonary function tests or any chest imaging. He wonders if he should get an inhaler. So what should we do next for him? While an as-needed bronchodilator while awaiting workup is unlikely to cause any harm, the most important next step in evaluating him is pulmonary function testing. 
In this case, our patient's spirometry was not consistent with obstruction, and he actually ended up having idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is epidemiologically similar in prevalence as those among with COPD, being more common among men with a smoking history in their 70s and 80s. Had we prescribed him long-acting COPD treatments, he likely would have derived no improvement, and we would have missed an important opportunity to treat his underlying problem with antifibrotic medications, which he has since been started on. So how are COPD patients diagnosed and who should be evaluated? It's important to note that there is a significant underdiagnosis problem for COPD, which may be related at least somewhat to minimalization of symptoms by patients, leading to underutilization of diagnostic testing. This lack of early recognition of COPD in patients results in a missed opportunity for counseling against further smoking for those who still use tobacco, as well as treatment with inhaled medications that reduce the burden of symptoms, the frequency of exacerbations, and that can improve health-related quality of life. Simultaneously, a quote-unquote clinical diagnosis of COPD is often made in situations where a patient has had tobacco exposure history and presents with shortness of breath or cough, but has not had diagnostic testing with spirometry. Oftentimes, these patients actually are suffering another respiratory disease, such as pulmonary fibrosis, and misdiagnosis is a significant problem in respiratory disease. It has been estimated that only about a third of patients in the United States who carry a diagnosis of COPD have ever had spirometric testing, not even to speak of those who have had spirometry, but with findings inconsistent with COPD. Under the current gold guidelines, spirometry is a mandatory part of the diagnostic workup for COPD, and any quote-unquote clinical diagnosis should be considered preliminary until confirmed by pulmonary function testing. In an era where radiologic testing in emergency departments and urgent care settings for other reasons is very common, increasing numbers of patients have emphysema or airway disease incidentally detected on a CT scan, including one perhaps done for lung cancer screening, a topic for another talk. Even in those who have radiographic evidence of emphysema, spirometry should be undertaken to confirm the diagnosis as well as make determinations about the degree of airflow impairment. So given this problem with diagnostic testing, should we be screening people who are not symptomatic for COPD if they have risk factors? Well, this is a more nuanced question, and professional societies differ on these recommendations. However, under the current United States Preventive Services Task Force recommendations, routine spirometry for screening of COPD among those who are not symptomatic is not currently recommended. Among those who are at high risk from smoke exposure but may not present with clear complaints, Using screening questionnaires for shortness of breath or COPD symptoms may help with the decision whether or not to pursue pulmonary function testing. Symptoms that warrant consideration of further workup include shortness of breath, particularly if it has progressed over time, is worth with exercise, or is pervasive, as well as chronic cough, which may or may not be productive of sputum. Additionally, a history of frequent lower respiratory tract infections, congenital or developmental abnormalities in childhood, difficulty with breathing in childhood, or tobacco smoking, as mentioned earlier, and exposure to occupational dusts, fumes, and other chemicals would be appropriate for further testing with spirometry. Furthermore, I always find it helpful when seeing patients in my clinic to ask about family history of COPD, particularly if the family member was a non-smoker or developed COPD at an early age, as well as consideration for cirrhosis running in the family, particularly among those without a heavy alcohol use history. 
These findings in particular could be indicative of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, a genetic condition known to cause COPD and emphysema, as well as cirrhosis of the liver. Anyone with alpha-1 deficiency should have routine, usually annual, spirometries, as well as a referral to a pulmonologist with experience managing this disorder. Most academic medical centers have a specialty clinic for alpha-1 deficiency. Incidentally, with the rise in direct-to-consumer genetic screening tests like Ancestry or 23andMe kits, we are finding more asymptomatic alpha-1 patients that need further diagnostic workup. Let's move on to another case. Our next patient is a 60-year-old woman with a 40-pack year history of smoking, having quit 30 years ago. She also endorses shortness of breath with exertion, a daily cough, and some occasional wheezing. She's never been hospitalized, but she did take a course of prednisone prescribed in urgent care about two months prior for bronchitis and felt better. She hasn't used any inhalers before. She just completed a spirometry test which showed obstruction graded as moderate based on an FEV1 of 50% of expected. Once a diagnosis of COPD is confirmed, as it is in this patient, how do we assess severity? Spirometry is mandatory for the diagnosis and useful for evaluating the degree of airflow obstruction, but the actual severity of COPD as a disease entity is determined using a multimodal evaluation tool. We categorize patients based on the degree of symptoms, both by shortness of breath as measured by the modified Medical Research Council dyspnea scale and symptom burden as measured by the COPD assessment test, respectively. Both of these instruments are readily available at the point of care online and also uploaded into most smartphone medical calculator apps. In addition to symptom severity, we categorize degree of risk using exacerbation history over the previous year. This is broken down as those having no or one exacerbation but never hospitalized as low risk and those with two or more exacerbations managed as an outpatient or any hospitalizations for COPD exacerbations as high risk. The symptoms and risk levels are aggregated into a matrix, which determines the grade of COPD from A through D. A summary of this tool is available online if you check out goldcopd.org and can also be found quickly by using just a simple search engine image search for gold COPD matrix which is usually how I do this in clinic if I have to remember or when teaching my interns and residents. So how should we manage stable COPD? The initial approach to pharmacologic therapy depends on the severity grade of the disease. For patients with the mildest disease, that is gold grade A, a prescription for an as-needed short-acting bronchodilator, such as albuterol, ipratropium, or a combination thereof is typically sufficient. This regimen is also useful for those where a diagnosis is not yet confirmed while awaiting spirometry if they have some intermittent symptoms. Probably the most common group encountered in the primary care setting are those with gold grade B COPD. These people should be started on a long-acting inhaled bronchodilator, which can be either a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, such as teotropium, eumeclidinium, or glycopyrrolate, or a long-acting beta agonist, where formoterol, oladaterol, and volantrol are the most common preparations available in the U.S. For those who have relatively few symptoms but frequent exacerbations, the relatively elusive gold grade C group 
A long-acting muscarinic antagonist is favored over long-acting beta agonist due to data supporting reduction in exacerbation frequency with long-acting muscarinic antagonists. I personally have yet to see any gold C patients in my clinic, and I'm not totally convinced that they're very common. Those who are most symptomatic and who have frequent exacerbations fall into gold grade D. Anyone in gold grade D should be started on combination therapy from the outset. The best data at this point in COPD is for combination long-acting muscarinic with long-acting beta inhaled medications, and multiple preparations such as teotropium oladaterol, umeclidinium volanterol, and glycopyrrolate formoterol are available, with some variation primarily in the way the drug is delivered, which could be a metered dose inhaler, similar to a typical albuterol rescue inhaler, a fine mist aerosol inhaler, or a dry powder inhaler. In some select patients, particularly those with a history of asthma or atopy, those who continue to have frequent exacerbations despite dual bronchodilators, or those with peripheral absolute eosinophil counts greater than or equal to 300 cells per high power field in the blood, the addition of inhaled corticosteroids could be considered. Routine use of triple therapy, that is dual bronchodilators with inhaled steroids, in all patients has fallen relatively out of favor due to the increased rates of pneumonias in this group. But this is an area of ongoing study and new data comes out every couple of years with new studies. Certainly dual versus triple therapy is not well agreed upon and significant variations in practice patterns remain. It should be pointed out that the addition of inhaled corticosteroids may help with exacerbations, cough or wheezing, but that they do not typically help much with dyspnea symptoms. My usual practice in clinic is to evaluate for ongoing need for inhaled corticosteroids about every six months. If the patient has not had an exacerbation in that period and does not meet any of the other criteria, I will de-implement inhaled steroids and only restart them if a patient begins having exacerbations again. So among these drug classes, how should I choose which inhaler device is best for my patient? It's important to note that the adequacy of treatment with drugs depends largely on the ability to get the medication into the lung. This may sound silly, but it is very common for patients to be given a prescription for an inhaler and never taught how to use it nor evaluated for technique of proper use. There are over 20 steps in using a simple inhaler properly and failure of any one of them can prevent adequate drug delivery. Because of this, I recommend considering requesting a set of placebo inhalers for whichever type of medications you tend to prescribe and having your office staff train patients and observe them using them. Most pharmaceutical companies are happy to send a set of demo inhalers to your office if you request them. In our clinic, we actually use a device that measures peak inspiratory flow rates to determine if a patient can generate a deep enough breath for each type of inhaler, which I found to be very helpful. And these measurement devices are very inexpensive and easy to use. If you don't have access to placebo devices or peak inspiratory flow meters, I would advise the patient to ask the pharmacist to show them how to both set up and use the new medication upon picking it up from the pharmacy for the first time. Additionally, I would ask them to bring the inhaler to clinic with them at their next appointment so you can watch them use it yourself and see how they're doing with it. As an aside, payers do reimburse a little bit for these evaluations and there is a CPT code you can bill for 
demonstrate and evaluate inhaler or aerosol device. Lastly, I find that spacer devices such as an aero chamber are very, very useful if the metered dose inhaler is the type prescribed. These remove the necessary uh, part of timing and inhalation with the actuation of the device by suspending the medication in a small chamber from which the patient just takes a few deep breaths. There are, of course, formulary restrictions from various payers that may restrict which medication your patient can get, but I've had pretty good luck in my own practice getting prior authorizations for different delivery devices if a patient clearly could not use the one that was on formulary. It should also go without saying that adherence is very important. In either case, before considering that the patient has failed a drug and escalating therapy by adding additional medications, I would strongly recommend evaluation of adherence and technique for the medication that they are prescribed to patients before changing and adding on additional medications. Furthermore, when thinking about moving up or moving down the ladder, we start our uh, base medications on the gold grade, but then move up if their symptoms are not controlled by adding additional bronchodilators or inhaled steroids, as I pointed out. And sometimes we'll move down if symptoms have been well controlled for six to 12 months by going perhaps from a dual bronchodilator to a single bronchodilator therapy. Every patient's case is different, and certainly uh, these are not fixed targets where a drug is prescribed and never thought about again. So we talked a lot about inhalers, but what about nebulized therapy? So some patients who have a difficult time using inhalers may benefit from a transition to nebulized therapy, which removes patient effort-dependent factors that may impair drug delivery. This is particularly true among patients with frailty or cognitive impairment, where coordinating a deep breath and breath hold at the same time as actuating an inhaler can be very challenging. Additionally, among patients with advanced arthritis or neuromuscular disease, the physical act of actuating an inhaler may be the difficult part, just opening the device, twisting it, etc., and another reason to consider nebulized therapy. Over the last few years, the FDA has approved both long-acting beta agonist and long-acting muscarinic antagonist with nebulized preparations, and nebulized corticosteroids are also available. With the long-acting therapies, treatment could be just once or twice a day, rather than the four times a day needed in previous short-acting nebulizer preparations. What are some adjunctive pharmacologic therapies that may help our patients besides these drugs we've mentioned? So in addition to bronchodilators and inhaled steroids, there are some non-drug treatments that could be considered, particularly among those with frequent exacerbations, as well as some just additional medications. I'll talk about the additional medications first. I would strongly recommend that you consider referring your patient to pulmonology rather than prescribing these medications that I'm about to mention yourself, as they are more specialized. But my goal now is to at least lend some context to why patients may get them in case they show up on your medication list when the patient comes back to see you. Among those with frequent exacerbations, and in particular with chronic bronchitis symptoms, like chronic cough with or without sputum production, reflumolast, which is a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, may help reduce exacerbation frequency. It should be pointed out that this drug has significant risk of both gastrointestinal and neuropsychiatric side effects. While the GI side effects can be mitigated simply by a dose reduction and taper back up to the full dose, anyone with neuropsychiatric side effects 
should stop the drug immediately upon any sort of hallucinations or change in mood, as there is a black box warning even for suicidal ideation. For those with asthma overlap, Biologic medications, um, particularly interleukin-4, 5, and 13 antagonists, which oppose type 2 allergic inflammation, can be considered, such as benlirizumab, dupilumab, or mepolizumab. These are not approved for patients with only COPD, but an asthma COPD overlap syndrome, and also among those who have significant blood eosinophilia. Each of those are subcutaneous injections that can be trained for use in office and then self-administered at home thereafter with an auto-injector device. While some practice patterns are stylistic, routine use of theophylline and chromalin are not really currently recommended due to their narrow therapeutic window. And the routine use of chronic oral corticosteroids can almost always be avoided in most patients with COPD just by carefully titrating and optimizing their other medications. This brings us to our third case. This patient is a 75-year-old woman with gold-grade DCOPD, having quit smoking five years ago. She is on triple therapy with dual bronchodilators and inhaled steroids, and has had three exacerbations in the last 12 months. Because of these exacerbations, she was recently started on reflumolast and is tolerating it well without side effects and no exacerbations since its initiation. But she presents saying she still gets very short of breath, even when dressing and bathing in the morning. Her inhaler technique was evaluated and is excellent. So what can we do besides drug therapy for this patient? It's important to keep in mind that non-pharmacologic therapy is an important part of COPD care. Smoking cessation counseling should be considered for anyone still using tobacco products and even smoking cessation medications when applicable. This may seem obvious, but it's the only treatment with a demonstrable and consistent mortality benefit. Supplemental oxygen for those with resting desaturation is well established, but becoming increasingly debated for brief exercise hypoxia. Use of nocturnal ventilation with bilevel positive airway pressure at night for those with chronic carbon dioxide retention may help improve quality of life and exercise tolerance. Perhaps, though, the biggest bang for the proverbial buck in COPD treatment is pulmonary rehabilitation. This is a specialized, supervised exercise program, usually administered by a combination of physical and respiratory therapists, and is covered by Medicare and most other payers. Typically, it's structured as an eight-week induction phase with an optional maintenance phase, and usually is two to three hours, usually two to three days a week. The program focuses on breathing techniques, ways to recover from breathlessness and conserve air, as well as endurance exercise training and cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with anxiety associated with breathlessness. I have never sent a patient a pulmonary rehab and had them not feel like it was a good use of their time. Referral to pulmonary rehab does not require a pulmonary clinical evaluation in a specialty clinic, but does require an FEV1 of less than 80% on spirometry for most payers to qualify. For the patient we just discussed, we started her on low-flow supplemental oxygen and then enrolled her in pulmonary rehab. Her exercise tolerance improved and she can now ambulate about 300 meters on two liters of supplemental oxygen before stopping to catch her breath, which is a significant improvement. So all this being said, when should I consider referring my patient with COPD to see a specialist? As I mentioned at the beginning, the majority of COPD care is provided in primary care clinics. 
For patients with mild disease, even a one-time consultation in a pulmonary clinic may be reasonable to help optimize medication and to see if there are new treatments or clinical trials available that a patient may be eligible for. Additionally, many patients with COPD would be eligible for lung cancer screening CT scans, which I won't cover today for the sake of time, but are things we commonly deal with in pulmonary clinic. Patients with moderate disease, that is gold grade B or C or higher, would benefit from referral, particularly when their symptoms remain uncontrolled, even after initiation of long-acting bronchodilators. Additionally, I would recommend referral for anyone with gold grade C or D disease, those with progressive loss of lung function, patients with other concomitant lung diseases like pulmonary fibrosis or pulmonary hypertension, and those requiring supplemental oxygen with chronic carbon dioxide retention or with significant air trapping seen on pulmonary function tests. For these more advanced patients, lung transplantation and bronchoscopic or surgical lung volume reduction treatments may be indicated and can significantly improve health-related quality of life and survival, but require extensive additional workup. We don't usually start these workups until we've had a chance to optimize medical therapy and get the patient enrolled in pulmonary rehabilitation. Additionally, and lastly, I'd like to remind our listeners that COPD is a hospice-eligible diagnosis, and those with severe progressive disease, despite maximal medical therapy, in particular those who are quite frail or losing body mass uh, and losing weight from respiratory cachexia, and those with significant comorbid medical conditions, should all be considered for hospice referrals with appropriate. A pulmonology referral can help guide that. Medicare outlines the criteria for hospice referrals nicely, all of which are available online. So with that, I would like to thank you for your time and attention today. You're welcome to reach out to me directly if there are questions I can answer or clarify for you. The PrimeMed administration team has my contact information. Please stay safe and thank you for your important work providing primary care during these difficult times. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.